All right, you may be seated. I took off my coat. I feel like I'm going to get spicy today. So I want to be prepared. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to roll up the sleeves and everything. It is, uh, it is awesome to be here with you all today. Oftentimes on Sundays when the weather's really bad outside, I'll say, man, the folks that are here today, you're a really committed group of folks. The same thing is true on a beautiful day like this. Uh, so thank you on such a gorgeous spring day for coming and worshiping with us here at Byfield. And yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. My name is Brent Fugate. I am the senior pastor here at Byfield. Last week, we returned to the book of 1 Corinthians after a long hiatus. And in the verses we read, Paul brought up an issue. A group within the church in Corinth is eating meat in, temp in the temples of idols. And this is causing problems for another group of believers within the church. Last week's verses and the verses we will read this week are focused on this specific issue that really doesn't have a ton to do with us today. But it brings up broader issues when these passages are engaged with on how to handle differences in knowledge in the church. In Corinth, knowledge, which is used poorly, is having negative impacts within that body. Last week's big take-home point was that Christians should use what we know to lovingly build up the people God has put us in relationship with, most especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Today's sermon is really a continuation of last week's sermon. It is a part B. Paul is still exploring knowledge, love, and Christian community. In today's verses, there is a new paragraph, but it's under the same heading because it's very much focused on the same topic. If I were ever going to write a book on 1 Corinthians, last week's sermon and this week's sermon would all be one very long chapter. So if you'll turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read verses 7 through 13. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 899. Otherwise, those verses will be projected on the screen behind me. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You have probably heard it said that knowledge is power. That statement was first made by the British statesman Francis Drake in 1597. Since then, there have been many variations on the idea. Poets, actresses, athletes, businessmen, and politicians have all put their own spin on the idea. Pretty much everyone agrees that knowledge grants power. Knowledge is thought to be a good thing for this reason, but we know power can be used to destroy just as readily as it, can, as it can be used to build up. In these verses, Paul is correcting the Corinthians' destructive misuse of knowledge. All Christians need to avoid using the knowledge we have in sinful ways. Not all possess the same level of knowledge. Variations in knowledge are the norm for any group of people. There are those that know a little, and there are those that know a lot, and there are generally a lot of people somewhere in the middle. If you analyze the prevalence of almost any trait, you will find what social scientists call a bell curve distribution, okay? And this is so common, it is actually called a normal distribution. A bell curve distribution is a normal distribution. So you have a little bit of people on one end, a little bit of people on the other end, and then the majority of the people in the middle. This is true of athletic ability, weight, height, and just about everything else you can think of. It will fall into this pattern. A problem that arises in every setting where people get together is what to do with those on the lagging edge of a bell curve distribution. This is a question I have to answer as the coach of my children's sport teams, right? There are those kids, they're really athletic. They really, they get it. They get it out there. And then there's the kids in the middle. They're kind of running around a little bit. And there's a couple of kids you're like, I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't know how to help this kid succeed in this situation. And in a team sports setting, this is not an irrelevant question. Because if you have five kids on a basketball court and one of them is just terrible, that affects the other people out on the basketball court. And, and I've seen youth coaches, because they're aware of this phenomenon, it's pretty obvious, anybody just not play kids that aren't good, they just leave them on the bench. Roman culture, the culture the Corinthians existed in, it didn't worry about those that were all on the low end of the bell curve. They were too busy celebrating those at the top. There was an active disdain for those that were weak 
intellectually or in any other way. It was common practice at the time Corinthians was written to let infants that didn't measure up for whatever reason die of exposure. They would just take them out of the woods and they would leave them there and they would walk away. There were not many adults with special needs in the Roman Empire as a consequence. They were eliminated, or at least hidden from public view. In the city of Corinth, a focus on personal status with a corresponding disregard for the weak was especially prevalent. Those of you that have heard the other parts of the sermon series might remember that Corinth, that was where you went if you were ambitious. If you were somebody that wanted to rise up. Those who hadn't been born into the city could, who hadn't been born into privilege, could go to the city, make a bunch of money, and they could basically buy their status among the elite. When the type of person who had worked their way up the Roman social hierarchy in Corinth became a Christian, they didn't automatically leave behind the worldly understanding they had developed throughout life. The Corinthian church had people in it that were a convoluted mix of Roman cultural values and Christian conviction. When it comes to the issue of food sacrificed to idols, their Romanness is dominating their response to the situation. Paul is trying to shift this Corinthian church in a Christian direction. They're not even aware of how much of their knowledge and how they use it is a product of their experiences for better and for worse. The people claiming superior knowledge about the non-existence of idols are convinced that what they are doing with their knowledge is right. In regards to believing idols are not real, they are exhibiting Christian belief. However, their use of this knowledge is culturally Roman. Christians today need to be cognizant of how much our use of the knowledge we have has been informed by our experiences in the world. By our Americanness. Present day American culture has some of the same tendencies that existed in Roman culture in Corinth. Like our brothers and sisters in Christ from 2,000 years ago, we were all raised in a nation that dominates the world. This domination came about through the efforts of exceptional, exceptional people throughout our history. George Washington and Henry Ford, Carly Lloyd and Steven Spielberg. Americans celebrate the individual who rises through the ranks by virtue of their own effort and skill. And in many situations, this celebration of the exceptional is a great thing. Some of you sports fans may be aware that the NFL draft was on Thursday night. Trayvon Walker 
The first player selected is from the University of Georgia. So this guy that gets selected, he's six foot five. So I'm six foot six, so he's about an inch shorter than me. Six foot five. He weighs 272 pounds. He runs the 40 in 4.51 seconds. Now, it's hard to explain how fast that is, but no human being that weighs 272 pounds should be able to move that fast. This guy, he can literally, this podium's probably about three feet tall. Yeah, it's about three feet tall. He can jump three feet in the air. So if he was standing here, he would be able to jump up and land on top of this podium. And you know what? That is awesome. I want to watch NFL games and I want to see Trayvon Martin out there doing things that I can't even imagine. Nobody wants to watch me. Nobody wants to watch me be an NFL football player. You know why? Because I'm basically average, right? We want to watch Trayvon Martin and that is fine. Mediocrity is not a desirable goal in any area of life. None of us is gifted the way Trayvon Martin is physically. But we should all aspire to the full potential of whatever giftedness we have. What is problematic for Christians, or at least should be, is when the power of an individual, whether it be athletic or knowledge-based, is used in the service of worldly values. That is what is happening in Corinth. The struggles of those lacking knowledge are disregarded in part because Roman culture doesn't care about the weak. Celebrating strength is the only focus. In the United States, you can find Christians and whole churches that prioritize a variety of cultural values that are considered superior over the basics of Christian community. I watched this documentary, multi-part documentary recently called The Way Down. It's about a church in Brentwood, Tennessee, which is just south of Nashville. And the church was started by a woman named Gwen Shamblin. She rose to fame in Christian circles by creating the Way Down Workshop. workshop. Way is W-E-I-G-H. The Way Down Workshop. Some of you might have done this workshop. It was really popular in the late 90s in Christian circles. But the story of Shamblin's church was just absolutely bizarre. I can't go into all the details. But what was clear from the documentary is that the whole church was built on prioritizing the cultural value of health, of being thin, of being in good shape that is what mattered and and that's not it's not a bad thing to be in good shape but it was it was the sole priority and any person in that church that didn't meet that standard was treated like an inferior piece of trash the power of knowledge can be used selfishly to fulfill our personal desires or selflessly to empower those who are weak. Those that lack knowledge in any given area are weaker than those that have it. 
they're more likely to be victims. Credit card companies have good reasons for setting up their little stands on college campuses where they try to get college students to sign up for credit cards because college students don't have a lot of financial knowledge in general. The reason it's so important for me to have a mechanic I trust is because they could lie to me. I don't, I don't know enough to be able to know if what they're saying is true or false. The people that are most likely to fall for scams are the least knowledgeable. The other day I got a text on my phone, it just came through and it said, please confirm your $500 purchase to Amazon. If you didn't make this purchase, call this 1-800 number. I was like, oh gosh, no, I didn't buy anything on Amazon. But thankfully, because I almost fell for it one time before, I recognized that this was a scam. But as I was, as I was you know, getting rid of the tax or whatever, I thought, how many people fall for this scam? It seems really official. There's a group in the Corinthian church that lacks knowledge. They are easily victimized. In the second part of verse seven, Paul writes, some through their former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled this is not ideal paul is not saying it is he's simply pointing out the powerlessness of certain individuals in the church it is important to note due to trends happening in our society that a lack of knowledge and the weakness that results from it is not a state anyone should revel in. There are those who don't want to grow in knowledge. They recognize doing so would necessitate change in their lives. It's easier to be powerless. It's easier to be a victim. The church is not supposed to be a place where ignorance or powerlessness is coddled. It's not what we're doing here. Paul is not saying that the Corinthians who know better should avoid dispelling the mistaken notion that idols are real. Any Christians who lack knowledge should be empowered with it. In a church, Christians shouldn't coddle those without knowledge nor should we dismiss them. We are all on the same team. Churches are not supposed to be all-star teams. They're supposed to be developmental in nature. Christians with the advantage of knowledge have a responsibility to those that are in the process of growing in knowledge. We must be aware of what might make a fellow Christian stumble. Someone say, that's not really my problem, right? It's not, it's not my problem what causes other people to stumble. This is the way the world works after all. If somebody is hurt by their own ignorance, that is on them. That may be the way the world works. That is not the way the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to work. Got some bad news. If it was, we would all 
be out of luck. Nobody became a Christian because they were smart enough to figure it out. Compared to Jesus, where do you think you fall on the bell curve? Seriously. Do you think you're just right there with him? You know, like he's really like the outlier, but you're just right there. I would challenge that notion. He, Jesus, chose not to leave us to the inevitable consequences of our outright stupidity. Okay? Paul warns the Corinthians who insist on using knowledge they have selfishly stating. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. This weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. The more knowledge a person has, the more power they have. A Christian that knows a lot has the ability to destroy a weaker Christian. When this happens, it is an absolute travesty. Christ came into the world and died for a sinner. That same sinner is destroyed by someone who claims to be a Christian that uses the power that comes from knowledge given them through Christ. I mentioned a while back that I listened to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is about a megachurch in Seattle. The pastor there, Mark Driscoll, had a ministry in which many thousands of people made professions of faith. He also led a ministry in which many weak people were destroyed. The power that comes through knowledge can be used for great good. It can also be used for incredible evil. Sinning against fellow Christians by using the power of knowledge in this way is a sin against Christ. Paul's statement equating disregard for weaker Christians with a direct assault on Jesus Christ is in line with with how much Jesus cares about those that lack knowledge and power. This is not just Paul being a little bit over the top. In fact, and I I always love it when this happens, I would argue Jesus goes way farther in how he communicates about this. In Matthew 18, the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? They have this status, this Roman status thing operating in their minds. Jesus points to a child. He then says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Nobody can say that Jesus lacks imagination. If I were going to come up, if I'm going to try to come up with a way, what is the worst possible way to die? I think getting a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Just imagine myself being pulled into the darkness by this weight that I could not fight as the breath slowly exited my lungs. 
Think about all the times Jesus deals with different sins. He consistently shows mercy and grace to all the self-destructive sinners whose acts are associated with ignorance and weakness. The people who use their knowledge and power to sin against those that lack either, he says it would be better for them if they had a millstone tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. We don't take sin against Christians whose knowledge is weak seriously enough. The faith of many has been destroyed by Christians who are supposed to have enough knowledge to know better. If you listen to the stories of those who grew up in the church or are part of a church, but no longer are, a toxic experience with someone that was supposed to be a mature Christian is is often the explanatory factor for the destruction of their faith. The specific event may vary. Maybe it was a youth pastor that had an affair, a Sunday school teacher that gossiped, or a theological truth stated without a hint of mercy. The common thread for many who have walked away from Christianity is a bad experience with someone who is supposed to have greater knowledge of what being a Christian is all about. I've often said from this pulpit before that the church is the body of Christ operating in the world. Jesus works through his church to bring about great good. This happens when the church operates as Jesus operates with love and wisdom. Most everyone came to faith through an interaction with a Christian. Even those rare people who became Christians through some miraculous occurrence need more knowledgeable believers to help them understand what has happened in their lives. When the church doesn't act like Jesus, when it is selfish and full of pride, it can bring about great evil. The faith of many has been destroyed by Christians. In the times we fail to be like Christ, we fail not just each other, we fail Jesus. Paul's willingness to forgo eating meat is a reflection, it is a working out of his love for Jesus. Jesus willingly gave up existence with God. He gave up his life. Paul can give up meat if that is necessary. By loving a weaker Christian, he is loving Christ. We are called to love Christ in the same way. This might be one of the hardest implications of being a Christian. We are all responsible for one another. We all lack knowledge in different ways. We all need to use the knowledge we have to build one another up. And honestly, I'm just relieved none of you have any big issues with me eating meat. These verses 
are a living testament to the power, love, and grace of Jesus Christ. When I think about my own Christian walk, how many times I have looked up, how many times those I have looked up to have failed, and how many times I have sinned against others that have looked up to me, it's hard to imagine how the church survives. My experiences are not unusual. In fact, they are common. And yet the church continues to exist. It has existed for 20 centuries of human failure, and it will exist as long as this world does. This is a reflection of Christ's own mercy to us. He knows our weakness. He compensates for our inevitable failures with his own knowledge. In our imperfection, the perfect knowledge of Christ is fully revealed. The inevitable shortcomings of Christians don't mean that we don't take those failures seriously. They have real tragic consequences. We should repent. We should exhibit the love that Christ has shown to us. But we will not despair because as serious as our failures are, the grace of Jesus Christ is infinitely greater. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I look around this room and I am aware that there are people in this room that I have failed. There are times that I have used knowledge that I may have selfishly to accomplish my own purposes, Lord. I pray that you would forgive that. I pray that those that are here that have experienced that from me would forgive me as well. And I ask that as we look around this room at each other, that we would extend each other mercy and grace. Lord, I also pray that you would give us the wisdom to use our knowledge well to build one another up, to encourage and to support one another so that we can might, so that we together can more fully reflect your mercy and grace to the world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.